You know, one of the uh, most tragic statements in the New Testament, I think, occurs in the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John, verse 15, where the Jewish high priests have been offered by Pilate, Jesus, as their king. And they reply to him, we have no king but Caesar. How far that nation had fallen into sin and unbelief. But it's amazing as the New Testament continues and you turn a few pages and arrive in the book of Acts, which opens up 50 days later at Pentecost with Peter's sermon, 50 days after the crucifixion, Peter preaches to that same nation who had called for Messiah's crucifixion. And as a result of that sermon, 3,000 believed and were baptized and the church was born. Not all that much longer after that, Luke reports to us in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, that the believers had increased to 5,000. Things seemed to be on a roll. A little bit later, Acts 6, verse 7, the text reports to us that a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. But that success in Jewish evangelism didn't last very long. In less than 15 years, Jewish opposition to the Gospel had mounted to such a level that the Apostle Paul was planting primarily Gentile churches throughout the empire. By the time Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70, the breach with Judaism was so complete that God's chosen people had been almost entirely excluded from the ranks of the faithful. For a couple of hundred years, the church was subject to intense persecution. Persecution that came at the hands of both pagans and Jews. That all changed, of course, in the 4th century when Constantine came to power and with him brought political power to the church. Once the church firmly had its grasp on the hands of governmental power, it launched persecutions of its own. And none were more shameful or enduring than the persecution of the Jewish people, which has survived in some parts of this world right up to and including today. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1133, 1133, Romans chapter 9. Paul has completed his doctrinal exposition of God's glorious plan of salvation in Romans chapters 1 through 8. And he ended, as we noted last time, on a an amazing and soaring statement of personal faith and certainty, the promised deliverance 
For he says in verse 38, chapter 8, I, for I am convinced, I am convinced that nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It would have been quite natural for him when arriving at this mountaintop of theological exposition to then turn his attention to the daily outworking of that doctrine in the lives of the church, the believers. That's Paul's typical way of structuring his letters to the church. They begin with doctrine and they end with duty. They begin with theology, what it is you are, and then how it is you are to behave based on who you are. That's a typical way that Paul writes. And it would have been very, very natural and flowed quite well when he finishes in verse 39, chapter 8, saying nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, to immediately begin chapter 12, verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It would have made good logical sense for him to have written the epistle that way. It would have flowed very nicely. The duty section of this epistle, beginning in chapter 12 and running through chapter 15, to have followed right hot on the heels of the doctrine section in chapter ending in chapter 8. But Paul doesn't do that. That's not what he does. And instead, he launches into chapters 9, 10, and 11, which are all about a discussion regarding the status and the future of the nation of Israel. Why? Why does he insert this substantial section in the middle of this great epistle? What's it all about? Some commentators call this the parenthesis in the book of Romans. They see it as an interruption in the flow of thought unrelated to the theme of the epistle. Something that the Apostle Paul just sort of cut and pasted and put in to this letter. But that kind of idea, that notion misses the point. The dominant theme of these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, is Jewish unbelief. Jewish unbelief. And it's actually critical, absolutely critical to the message of this book as a whole. In these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, Paul raises two important questions that must be addressed. They must be addressed. Or his glorious gospel will prove to be a fraud. If the Apostle Paul cannot give an answer to these two questions, then all that has gone before in chapters 1 through 8 is not worth anything. 9, 10, and 11 are critical. Critical to understanding the message of this book as a whole. These two questions are something like this. First question. How could the privileged people of God have failed to recognize their Messiah? How is it that these privileged people of God have failed to recognize their own Messiah? 
since Paul has written in chapter 1, verse 2 of this very same letter that the gospel was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament. It was promised beforehand in the Old Testament. So how is it that the people of the book missed it? Why didn't they embrace Messiah? Second question that flows through this section is that if God's promises to Israel regarding her redemption could be frustrated, then how reliable are His promises to you and me? If we cannot answer these questions, if Paul cannot satisfactorily answer these questions, then all that has gone before is of no value. How could Israel have missed it? Why didn't they believe? And if they can be frustrated, what makes me so confident that nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus my Lord? So Paul must address these questions. And these two questions lie underneath all that is discussed in these chapters 9, 10, and 11. It's interesting to note here, by the way, beloved, that as Paul addresses these two underlying questions, that he does so by drawing heavily upon the Old Testament to answer them. In fact... Paul will prove based upon the Old Testament that Israel's unbelief is neither a disruption in God's plans nor a permanent condition. It is neither a disruption nor is it permanent. In fact, it's quite interesting to note that of all the Old Testament citations in all of Paul's writings, that's Virtually, you know, all the New Testament, with the exception of the Gospels, of all those Old Testament citations the Apostle Paul brings to bear, one-third of them occur in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans. This issue is not some tangential issue. This issue is at the very heart of things. And the Old Testament is the place where the answer can be found to these significant questions. Paul says that the the problem with Israel is very explainable in light of Old Testament revelation. Now, historically, since the days of Augustine in the 4th century, many in the church have attempted to solve the problem of Israel by teaching that God has set Israel aside. God has set Israel aside and He has transferred the spiritual blessing of her covenants to the church and then effectively deleted the material blessings of those same covenants. Since way back in the 4th century, that has been a predominant teaching in the church. But that's a theological misunderstanding. That fails to account For Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And if we will openly and honestly approach these chapters together, if you will allow this text to speak to you this morning and then in the weeks to come, then you will finally have an answer to that question. C.E.B. Cranfield, New Testament scholar and writer of a two-volume tome on the book of Romans that anybody who's serious about studying the book needs to be able to interact with. He writes the following, quote, 
it is of the most utmost importance to take these three chapters together as a whole and not to come to conclusions about Paul's argument before one has heard it to the end. What Cranfield is saying is that we need to understand the argument that Paul is comprising here in verses, chapters 9, 10, and 11, and we need to see it all together. We need to not lift sections out of this at random and interpret them outside of the controlling context of chapters 9, 10, and 11 as a whole. So this morning we're just going to begin to set it up. That's all we're going to be able to do this morning is set it all up. So this morning we're going to see why Israel's unbelief seems to nullify the reliability of the Word of God so that we will understand the significance of Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Let me read the text for you just to get us started. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. We're going to look at the first five verses this morning. And I just I guess I need to warn you, you're going to have to have thinking caps on this morning. There's just no way around this. The Apostle Paul, I said it, he includes one-third of all of his Old Testament citations in these three chapters. The Apostle Paul expected his readers to understand and to interact with the Old Testament. The Spirit of God expects us to do the same thing. This is not easy material. This is not lightweight stuff. This is a great big T-bone steak. And the only way to enjoy it is to eat it piece by piece, mouthful at a time. So that's what we're going to have to do. So today, there's just not going to be a lot of stuff that you can take home and readily apply in your life. I'm sorry. But you have to understand the setup if you're going to understand how this thing plays itself out. Let me read the text. Beginning in verse 1. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. You know, it's, it's difficult for us to interact with this section of the book of Romans. One of the reasons it's difficult for us is because we are predominantly Gentile in orientation. And the church has been predominantly Gentile now for almost 2,000 years. So when you open your Bible, when I open my Bible, I see it with Gentile eyes. But beloved, this is a Jewish book. This is a Jewish book written by Jewish authors. And it is speaking first and foremost to the Jewish nation. And we've got to understand that. We have got to take the time to understand that. And, and it may, in a sense, seem like a problem that, that nobody cares about. But God cares about it. 
God cares about it. And as I said earlier, the answer to the questions here is huge. If we cannot account for Israel, then we do not have a firm foundation upon which we can say God will be faithful to us. I've divided this up for you into two parts. I'm going to begin in verses 4 and 5 rather than 1 through 3. I'm going to take a text in reverse order for you this morning. And I want to do that because I think it, it highlights and brings to the foreground the, the problem here so that we can see it. So if you'll permit me to just take it a little bit out of order, I think that will help us to see the weight of the problem here. So I'm going to begin in verses 4 and 5. I'm calling this Israel's particular privileges. Israel's particular privileges. That is, that these privileges are specific to Israel. They are particular to the nation of Israel. Verses 4 and 5. And in these two verses, Paul lists eight overlapping spiritual privileges enjoyed by a very special people. And I listed them for you in that handout. I put a lot in that handout for you so that you don't maybe have to write so many things down and you can listen a little more carefully. So there are eight overlapping spiritual privileges here. And they begin in verse 4 with just a general term. This is not one of the eight, but it's just a, a general term where it says, who are Israelites? You see that? Who are Israelites? That's sort of the, that's the umbrella term. That's the big one that sits above all the others. Israelite denotes a person who belongs to Israel, the tribe of Israel, the name given by God to Jacob, Genesis chapter 32, verse 28, and applied to Jacob's offspring. You notice Paul doesn't speak here who are Jews, verse 4. Jew has a little more context of, of a political entity. He is speaking here in religious terms, and so he's talking about Israelites, and this term Israelite, it carries with it the idea of a chosen people, a chosen people, people chosen by God to belong to him in a very special way. People who were who were chosen to be his vessels for the plan of salvation that he would bring to the world, the Israelite. To be an Israelite is by definition to be among the people of God. To be an Israelite is to be, by definition, among the people of God. You can see that, by the way, over in chapter 11, verse 1. Go ahead, and it's worth flipping there. Chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite. You see that? I too am an Israelite. That is, that I am a, one of the people of God. So to be an Israelite is to be, by definition, among the people of God. It's also significant, by the way, verse 4, back in Romans 9, to notice that Paul refers to the Israelites. He calls them his brethren. He calls them his kinsmen according to the flesh up in verse 3. But notice he refers to them in the present tense. Do you see that? who are Israelites, present tense, not who were Israelites, who are Israelites. They're, they are referred to here in the present tense. And the interesting thing is, is that they are unbelievers. They are unbelievers, and yet they are still presently called Israelites. That is, that they're, 
that the privilege of being an Israelite has not been revoked. It has not been revoked. They are Israelites. Furthermore, the privileges, these eight privileges that Paul attributes to them, are also in the present tense. You see that in the text. Take a look. Who are Israelites to whom belongs, not belonged, past tense, but belongs, present tense, the adoption as sons. What that means is that these privileges remain a present blessing to the people of Israel. And herein now lies the tension in this whole section. You can begin to feel the tension of this section. According to Paul, even though Israel is presently unbelieving, her status and her privileges have not been revoked, nor have they been transferred to the church. They remain her present possession. They are still her present possession. The problem that Paul's addressing here in Romans 9 through 11 is not how can the church take Israel's place? That's not the problem. The problem he's addressing is how can his kinsmen be both at the same time privileged and accursed? How can it be that they are both privileged and accursed? So let's take a look at these overlapping privileges here. These eight privileges. Beginning verse 4, the first. To whom belongs, present tense, the adoption as sons. They are her present possession. Now, many commentators, by the way, take this expression, uh, adoption as sons, and they relate it back into the Old Testament to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, where God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So they relate it to some sort of historical statement that was made way back to Pharaoh in Egypt. But the problem with seeing it that way is it doesn't give enough weight to the present tense reality. Again, Paul doesn't say who were Israelites. He says who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption. It was not a historical occurrence. It is a present reality. The adoption belongs to them. Beyond that, the word adoption as sons, that very Greek word translated adoption as sons, is, is only used by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He is the only one to use that word. And in fact, that word translated adoption as sons has no prior religious connotation anywhere. It has no connotation in the Old Testament. It has no connotation outside the Old Testament. This is a word that Paul made up and uses, and he's the only one that uses it. He uses it in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, where he talks about, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. He uses it in Romans 8, 23. He says, we ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. He uses it over in Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, and he says, uh, that Christ was born under the law so that He might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He says, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. So every time the word is used, and it's only used by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, every time it's used, this concept of adoption as sons, it is rich with Saving implications. It is loaded with 
salvific implications. The adoption as sons is about salvation. It it means salvation. And that reality, to understand it that way, it intensifies the contradiction here before us. It intensifies it. Israel's present possession is the benefit of the adoption by sons, yet at the same time she's hardened in her unbelief. This is her benefit. This is her privilege. Salvation is hers, and yet she is hardened in unbelief. Notice he goes on. He says, and the glory. And the glory. Again, not a historical reference. He's not talking about the glory cloud from Exodus. He's talking about future glory. The future glory. And again, that is woven into salvation. I'm not going to go there, but Romans chapter 2, verse 10 is a, a great verse to take a look at that. Glory, not historical past. A future glory to be received when salvation is consummated in the kingdom. So it belongs to Israel, the adoption of sons. It belongs to Israel, the glory. It belongs to Israel, the covenants. The third privilege, the covenants. These are the only people with whom God has specifically made covenants which remain in effect and determine her destiny even to this day. She is the only people in all of mankind that has received direct covenants with God. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the new covenant, these are covenants made with the Israelites. And certain provisions of these covenants are yet to be fulfilled. They remain future. They remain future. So she is still in possession of the benefit of the covenants. He goes on to say, in the giving of the law, that is expressing God's special love for His people through His law. The means by which they come to know Messiah. It is still her possession. And the temple services. The temple services is talking about the sacrificial, sacrificial provisions of the Old Testament. And in particular, it's talking about the origin of those sacrificial rituals, which is in the Passover. The Passover itself, it's the, it's the origin, it's the beginning point, it's the, it's the fountain from which all the other sacrifices flow out, the Passover. And the Passover is an annual celebration that the nation of Israel continues to observe even to this day. Every time they celebrate the, fast, the Passover, the nation of Israel comes face to face with the heart of the Gospel. 1 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 3, you can check it on your own. Paul says exactly that. Christ is our Passover lamb. Every time the nation participates, they come face to face with their Messiah. It is their continuing privilege. Beyond that, the promises. You see it? It is the promises, the end of verse 4. God gave to Israel the promise of Messiah's coming. The promise of His coming and the promise of His reign. And the promise of the blessings that would flow from that rain. And beloved, these promises remain in effect. They are still in effect today. Acts chapter 2, verse 39. Peter's preaching to them and he says that these promises remain in effect for them and their children and for all who are far off and as many as the Lord shall call to Himself. These promises are still in effect. 
Verse 5, whose are the fathers? You see it? Another privilege. Whose are the fathers? Well, I think within the context here of verses 6 through 13, we can figure out who these fathers are. They're mentioned for us in that section. It's Abraham. It's Isaac. It's Jacob. These are the fathers Paul is talking about. These are the ancestors of the nation. These are the ones who are beloved by God with an irrevocable love, which is the reason why Paul says that Israel is still guaranteed her future salvation. Flip over to Romans chapter 11 for a minute, verse 28, 29. You can see where he says it. Romans 11, verse 28, 29. He says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Their promises remain in effect through the fathers. Paul is piling up, piling up the privileges here. And these are, these are overlapping privileges. The covenants, the promises, the fathers, they, they point to the surety of Israel's salvation. And thus they highlight the paradox of her present condemnation. How can it be? How can it be that one who is so richly blessed can be so spiritually blind? He goes on. Verse 5, he says, From whom is the Christ? According to the flesh who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. This is sort of the culmination of all of this. The greatest honor, the greatest blessing ever given to the nation of Israel was that from her loins comes Messiah. This is perhaps an obvious statement, but maybe you haven't thought about it lately. The Savior of the world is a Jew. The Savior of the world is an Israelite. He was a man of Jewish descent. Not a Gentile. Messiah. Savior of the world. An Israelite. An Israelite. But He's also God, Paul says. Do you see it? Christ according to the flesh, that is Messiah, according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. I think that's not really a very good translation there. Grammatically, you know, there's no punctuation, by the way, in the original text. So it's, you have to figure out how you're going to punctuate this. I think the NASB didn't do it as well as it could have. New King James, English Standard Version, NIV, I think they've got it better. God who is overall blessed forever. Amen. I think Paul's making a statement here that the Messiah came in the flesh as a Jewish man, but He is also God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He's affirming here the deity of Jesus Christ as well as His physical descent. These are the privileges of the nation of Israel. Particular privileges that no other people have or ever will have. So now we can turn back to verses 1-3 through and look at her present plight. In light of those privileges, her present condition, her present plight stand out vividly and create for us the problem that Paul wants us to see. The Apostle Paul was the great preacher of Gentile salvation. He was fierce in his opposition to his own countrymen who wanted to require that the Gentiles 
come back under Jewish law-keeping. The Apostle Paul would have no part of it. He was, he was committed to that, not happening. And because of that, he was considered by most of his countrymen as a traitor, an enemy of his people. In fact, his greatest adversaries arose from within the nation of Israel, from within Judaism. They absolutely hated him. In fact, they hated him so much, they were willing to hire somebody to murder him. That's how intense their opposition was. Yet in spite of their hatred of him, Paul has nothing but love in his heart for his people. You see this? I'm telling you the truth. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Religion, the social fabric of his people. In fact, just the opposite. He desperately wants them to understand and receive the good news that Messiah has come in person and that person is Jesus of Nazareth. That's Paul's consuming passion. That the Messiah has come. That it is Jesus of Nazareth and it is in fulfillment of all that the prophets have said. So he writes a letter to a church here at Rome. A church he's never been to. A church he's never visited, but a church he hopes soon to visit. A church that's made up of both Jew and Gentile. A church that's struggling with tensions that come about by living in a mixed assembly like that. And so Paul begins his explanation of Israel's plight by forcefully proclaiming his sincere love for them. Look again at verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul emphasizes both positively, he says, I'm telling the truth, and negatively, I'm not lying. Beyond that, he calls a witness from his conscience. He says, my conscience bears me witness. That inborn faculty of the soul that that monitors a person's moral conduct. He says, my conscience bears me witness. My conscience is clean in this. What I'm telling you is absolutely the truth. Beyond that, Paul's not acting in a vacuum here. He's not, he's not acting outside his Christian commitment. Because he is a Christian, he's committed to Jesus Christ. He, he calls upon that union with Christ. You see it? I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm telling the truth in Christ. And, and beyond that, he, he calls into play the fact that the Spirit of God dwells within him. And he says that my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He, he brings to bear all that he is and all that he has. And he says, what I'm about to tell you is absolute, the way we say it today, God honest truth. I'm telling you the truth here. Well, Paul, what is it? What is the truth that you're solemnly testifying to? Verse 2, take a look at it. What is this truth, Paul? He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I am grief stricken over the spiritual condition of my own people. My heart is breaking. For the nation of Israel. Why? Why, Paul? Why is your heart breaking? Because they have rejected the gospel. They have rejected the gospel and they are thus destined to pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 Paul goes on to say, verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Accursed 
The word is anathema. Anathema, doomed to destruction. Paul is saying that I could wish myself anathema. I could wish myself doomed to destruction. Separated from Christ. I mean, these are strong terms. Strong terms. And these terms highlight the spiritual condition of the people for whom Paul is willing to exchange places. It only makes sense, beloved, that Paul's willingness to suffer the fate of eternal damnation, it only makes sense if he's willing to do that on behalf of somebody who is going there themselves. They're going to go there themselves. So Paul says, if it were possible, I'm willing to go there in their place. This is the language of love, by the way, not the language of logic. This is the language of love, not the language of logic. This is the expression of a deep passion and desire in the heart. Paul's already said, verse 39, right? Chapter 8, that nothing can separate him from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That is, not even his own wishing could separate him. This is not a reality. This is not a possibility. He knows that his damnation cannot earn their justification. So there's... It can't come to pass, but it still expresses the depth of the yearning within his own heart. Very similar, by the way, to the prayer that Moses prayed. Back in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 32. After the golden calf, Moses prayed to God that God would forgive the people of Israel. But if he chose not to, that Moses' name would be blotted out of the book. That's the kind of prayer. It's a prayer in which he is so identified with his people. He loves his people so much that he, he would be willing, if it were possible, to stand in their place. Now, the fact that it's not possible doesn't mean we should pass over his words lightly. That we should just walk across this and say, well, he was, yeah, he was saying, wishing for something that he knew couldn't happen, so what kind of wish is that? That's to miss it. That's to miss it. And the truth is that very few of us can relate to this kind of love. Isn't that true? Very few of us can relate to this kind of love. There might be one or two people in your life that you're willing to die for. I suspect there is probably nobody that you're willing to go to hell in their place. This is a depth of love that is hard to understand. Particularly, by the way, if you meditate on the awful reality of hell. This is a challenge, this section. This is the challenge. But what kind of love do I really have? Do I love people? But beloved, that's not the point of this section. That's a penetrating question. That's a powerful question. But it's not the reason... Paul penned these chapters. He didn't, he didn't write this just so that we could see that he really loved lost people and we should love lost people too. As much as he loved them. As deep as his love was for them. He writes chapters 9, 10, and 11 to communicate something even more important than that. The emotion of these chapters is, is a backdrop. 
Paul is deeply concerned for Israel, but he is concerned even more for God's reputation. Take a look at verse 6. Just the beginning of verse 6. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. This whole section, 9, 10, and 11, is about the Word of God. Has it failed? Has God's Word not come true? And Paul is going to repeatedly say, no way. Israel is the object of God's electing love. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the nations, all the peoples on the face of the earth, to be His people. Yet from the standby of the Gospel, they are enemies. Romans eleven twenty eight. How can this be? How can it be? Does it mean the Word of God has been nullified? That's the central issue. The central issue in this whole section. Has the Word of God been nullified? Let me just take a couple of minutes and give you an overview of the chapter, so these three chapters, okay? Let me show you where we're going. Preliminary answer to that question. The reason I want to do this, by the way, is is that it's often people come to these chapters and they just pick out a piece of it. And they, they use it outside of its context. And we're going to deal with some really tough stuff here. Really tough stuff. We've got to keep it in, in the context of why it's written and what it's written for. Chapter 9, what's it all about? What's chapter 9 about? Chapter 9 is about Israel's fall and God's election. Verses 9 through 13, the doctrine of election is taught. It is taught there. Verses 14 through 29, Paul answers the objections that his doctrine of election raises. Romans 9 is the place to go for the doctrine of election. But it needs to be understood in the context of Israel. Chapter 9. Chapter 10. The fall of Israel is their own fault. It is Israel's fault that she fell. Because she fell through disobedience. Chapter 10. Actually, beginning of verse 30 of chapter 9, running all the way through chapter 10, verse 5. Paul says Israel has rejected God's way of righteousness. Verses 6 through 13, chapter 10. That the way of faith has always been close at hand for her. Chapter 10, verses 14 to 21, that the message of salvation has been repeatedly refused. There are many who want to reconcile the doctrine of God's sovereign election and man's responsibility to believe. It's fascinating to me that here in chapters 9 and 10 of Romans, Paul doesn't bother to try to do it at all. He declares sovereign election in chapter 9 without apology. The strongest words that can be found anywhere in the Bible are here in chapter 9. And then he immediately comes back in chapter 10 and he declares man's responsibility to believe and then the fact that, that a person doesn't is their own fault. And he never tries to marry them. Never. He merely declares them. Election and responsibility. Chapters 9 and 10. Chapter 11. What is the future of the nation? Restoration. 
Chapter 11 is about the restoration of Israel. Verses 1-10, through 10, chapter 11. Paul says, in spite of Israel's rejection of God, God has not rejected her. In spite of their rejection of Him, He has not rejected her. Verses 11-15. through 15, Why did Israel stumble? Answer, it opened the door for the Gentiles. Why did she stumble? It opened the door for the Gentiles. Verses 16-24 through 24 is a rebuke of Gentile arrogance. A rebuke of Gentile arrogance where Paul says, He broke off natural branches and grafted in ones that weren't by nature part of the olive tree, but do not be arrogant. Do not be arrogant towards those who were broken off. Gentile arrogance. That's a message we really need to hear. Verses 25 to 29, the actual restoration of the nation. The restoration of the nation. Verse 26, it says, Thus all Israel will be saved. There is a future restoration and salvation for the nation of Israel. And then finally, verses 34 through 36 is a detail of the mercies of God. It ends with the mercies of God. In fact, that's probably a fitting way to end all of this. Oh, the depth of the riches. Hold up the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be the glory forever. Amen. How do you respond to the incredible truth contained in Romans 9, 10, and 11? You respond in doxology. Praising the glory, the power, the mystery of the God of the universe. Let's pray. Our Father, as we work through these chapters together over these next weeks and months, Romans 9, 10, and 11, And we are brought face to face with some truth that is so above us, so mysterious to us, so glorious. We pray that You would humble our hearts. Humble our hearts, our Father, that we would listen to what it is Your Spirit is saying. That we would be willing to suspend conclusions until we have heard the argument out until our Father that we would listen and not respond emotionally but that we would have hearts of faith and our Father when we have arrived at the end I pray that we could join our voices with the Apostle Paul in a great doxology of praise 
acclaiming Your glory, Your power, Your majesty. That from You and through You and to You are all things. To You be the glory forever and ever. Amen.